Oh, Dave! Now, do you remember before when we spoke about that upcircle beauty? I do. Yeah, we loved it, didn't we? We used their skincare. Well, Mrs. Dave did, anyway. And Mrs. Dave said I could say on the radio that she liked it. Upcircle Beauty, old, you will recall, upcycle leftover natural ingredients like kiwi water from the juicing industry into face and body products, serums, moisturisers, soaps, and that, right? They're all handmade in the UK and hand-refilled too. And they've got this return-refill-reuse scheme on the go, which means once you finish your product, you send back your packaging in a free post label, they refill it, and they send you back the exact packaging you return. So you save money and packaging every time you do that. Oh. Pretty cool. Now, UpCircle say that their UpCirclers, which is people like Mrs. Dave, I guess, have saved nearly 7,000 pieces of packaging. Pretty ace. Every refill is at a discount too versus the recommended retail price. So you're saving the planet and your wallet. There's never been, Dave, a better time to get your first UpCircle products because, as a Babbel listener, you get 15% off your first order. So go to upcirclebeauty.com and use the code Babbel to get yourself 15% off. That's B-A-B-B-L-E. Welcome to Sustainable 238. Welcome yourself all to Sustainable 238. I am very excited. That's why I'm talking high and fast. <laughs> so you are. Why are yes. you excited, Dave? Because this week, oh yeah, we are Sustainable Friendly Weekly Environment Podcast. Listen to us, have fun, laugh lots, learn stuff. And this week we're going to we are talking to someone amazing. Spoiler Ol goes on to say this is perhaps one of, if not your favourite interview, what we've ever done. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Who is it? Oh, yeah. Uh, it's, uh, it's Professor <laughs> Catherine Hayhoe. Uh, you almost certainly know about Catherine Hayhoe if you listen to this podcast, but you might not, of course. Uh, she is an atmospheric scientist. She is the chief scientist at the Nature Conservancy in that there, America. Um, j- just like brilliant communicator yes. uh, about climate science, about the nature of our response to climate and climate science and just great just excellent yeah and also i mean so that we talked about all sorts of stuff we talked about having conversations with people and how to do it about where she gets hope from those kind of things but we also talked about jesus because she's also like as well as being all of those things christian and proud of it um and is unafraid to kind of be an ambassador. In fact, she's written a book um, about how Christians can get other Christians to be good environmentalists and stuff. And we talked about that, learned a hell of a lot as well. So just, just amazing. Really, really enjoyed this, did we not? Oh, superb, yeah. Uh, just the usual disclaimers before we go on to the interview. We do work for environmental charities, don't we, Dave? Yes. Uh, but these are very much our own views. So if you've got any beef with anything Dave or I or Catherine says I mean you won't but you know whatever Uh, take it up with us directly but not with the people for whom we work yes yeah or if you've got the guts take it up with Catherine but you know yeah I mean you could try taking on uh, one of Time Magazine's 100 most influential people um, (laughs) or um, I don't know Fortune's 
uh, world's greatest leaders. Uh, yeah. But you know, all power to you. If that's what you want to do, you go right ahead. Indeed. And we are a listener-funded podcast, so thank you so much to everyone who supports us on Patreon, www.patreon.com slash sustainababble, where you get to find out that we are doing things like interviewing Catherine, and you get to ask questions what we put to Catherine in the chat. So please do that. And if you can't support us that way, please do leave us a nice review on your podcast medium of choice. Yes? Dave, is it drinks o'clock? Yeah, it must be drinks o'clock. Old Bean, the sun is always over the yard arms somewhere. So yeah, why don't you crack open a bottle of the Hidden Sea Wine? You deserve it. I might just do that because the Hidden Sea Wine is rather splendid. For every bottle they sell, they remove 10 plastic bottles from the ocean. And so far, they've removed nearly 10 million plastic bottles with what they say is an audacious goal of removing 1 billion of the blighters by 2030. Now, look, you can get some of this from their lovely solar-powered winery in South Australia. I'm sorry, where? How's it getting in? Pogo stick or what? Uh, I, I don't think it's by pogo stick, no. But it does come in, like, massive great big bags, which are then emptied into smaller bottles in the UK. So, you know, not too bad on the transport farm. But for God's sake, if we're saying now that you can't have anything from abroad, then that rules out most things, like, I don't know, chocolate. So... Yeah, it's from Australia, but loads of wine from Australia. If you're going to buy Australian wine, buy the Hidden Sea wine from Australia. That's what I'm saying. So very good. So you can get the Hidden Sea wine at Sainsbury's Co-op, Asda and Booth's and no doubt other places as well. You can have a rosé, you can have a Sauvignon Blanc and a Chardonnay, whatever these things are. They sound very nice to me. <laughs> they're all they're um, all on draft and available in pint glasses, Dave. Don't worry. <laughs> very good. And prices start from just £8. So I suggest to you, Olive, if you're feeling blue and seasonally glum, crack open a bottle of the Hidden Sea wine old chum poetic we have a section on this podcast what is called Inhoff of the Week and we've had it for six and a half years now and we award it to the person of the week who has done the most annoying thing, said the most annoying thing. Um, and as an actual American, what is going on there? What's going on with James Inhofe? This, for new listeners, is a senator who brought a snowball to the Senate uh, to prove that climate change is not real because there was still snow. Yes? I asked the chair, you know what this is? It's a snowball. And that's just from outside here. So it's very, very cold out, very unseasonal. So here, Mr. President, catch this. Mm-hmm. Yes, that is correct. Yes. But I would like to say that I'm not an actual American. I was going like to pick you up on that day. It's like oh, calling yeah. a Kiwi an Aussie. Yeah. You cannot call Canadians Americans. We are not the same thing. <laughs> oh, good Lord. A little bit of me died inside when you said that, Dave. And I was wondering whether Catherine was going to like just be you know, incredibly kind to you and not make you squirm. But I'm glad that she hasn't. Okay. Not at all. <laughs> I'm not squirming here. It's fine. Someone say something. But, but I, do, I do live in Texas. And Texas is next door to Oklahoma. So let me tell you a story about a different politician, not Inhofe, but of the very same type as Inhofe. And this was a former Texas politician who is very well known for the same type of rhetoric. 
climate is not changing, humans are not responsible. I have heard him give a talk to a whole group of environmental journalists and just flat out tell them it's just a natural cycle, it's no big deal, you know, to a room of 200 horrified faces. Yet, one of my colleagues ended up beside this politician on an airplane once coming back from one of our climate conferences. We have a South Central uh, Climate Adaptation Science Center where we work with everybody from landowners and farmers to tribal nations. And so he ended up beside uh, this politician and they were chatting and the politician said, oh, you know, where are you coming back from? So he sort of flinched a little bit inside, but he took a deep breath and he said, well, climate science, adaptation, this is what we do. And the politician said to him, climate change, that is such an important issue for our region. I'm so glad you're studying that or words to that effect. I was not there, so I am mm -hmm. paraphrasing. Mm -hmm. The point was, is why was he publicly denying it when he actually thought privately that it was such an important thing? Just about every American politician, and of course I don't know them personally, this is just my educated guess, but most of them, if you got them in a dark room with no recording equipment whatsoever and you gave them truth serum, they would probably say, sure, climate change is real. So what is it? They don't want to fix it. That's what it is. And they know that if you say, Yes, this is a real problem. It has real impacts today. It disproportionately affects the poorest and most vulnerable people in my district, as well as on the other side of the world, and I don't want to fix it. That doesn't make you sound like a very good person. So instead, we, and we all do this to a certain extent, anybody who doesn't want to do anything about something, we go out and we practice what's called motivated reasoning, where we go out and we find reasons to explain why our decision is right and good. So they go out and they find reasons, and you can see that they cycle through talking points. Like for a while, they were using that, oh, I'm not a scientist talking point. And then they use that, it's cold outside talking point. And then they use that, oh, scientists aren't sure talking point. They have all these talking points that if we engage with the talking point, we're like Don Quixote tilting at windmills. Uh -huh. What is behind it is always the same thing, which is I don't want to fix it. And that's why focusing on constructive, positive solutions that have benefits now and here, you know, grow jobs, grow the economy, invest in that area. Those, that, those types of conversations are the ones we need to be having because once we have those, the objections eventually evaporate. Why don't they want to fix it? then? What is it? Is it that they don't want to do without the lovely, lovely oil because they like lovely oil or what? Or is there something deeper than that going on? That's a part, a big part of it. Um, the fact that we have built an entire society based on fossil fuels. And there are a number of places in the world that have gotten extremely wealthy and politicians have gotten extremely powerful off those fossil fuels. That is part of it. But there's a reinforcing cycle. The more politicized climate change began to be, the more it reinforced their brand to reject it. And so now, even if there were, you know, a conservative politician who did not get their income from fossil fuels, who decided that they were going to say climate change is real, and that we have an example of somebody like that, actually, his name is Bob Inglis, ultra-conservative, two-time Republican congressman from South Carolina, his son sat him down and said, Dad, I'm old enough to vote now, but I can't vote for you unless you take a better look at climate change because you're wrong on that issue. We've had, we've had very similar stuff in the UK where people have gone on record, or, or rather not so much on record, but have been saying, look, I, I can't just carry on doing the whole dragging my feet on climate because my daughter is giving me shit at home. Like, that, you know, it's, it's a thing. And it's fascinating that that is, that is actually the thing that influences these 
unbelievably well-informed and powerful people is their is their relatives Exactly. And, and that just shows the power, right, of having these conversations. But so, so what happened with Bob was he said, you know, at that time, I really didn't know much about climate change other than if Al Gore was for it, I was against it. That's what he said. So it wasn't even the interest in fossil fuels that was keeping him on that side. It was just the fact that it was, a, it was one of the articles or statements of belief in order to adhere to that particular ideology. And when he did change his mind, he was pilloried as a heretic for it. No one is to stone anyone until I blow this whistle. Do you understand? Even, and I want to make this absolutely clear, even if they do say Jehovah. I don't want to be naive about like the influence of fossil fuel companies and their lobbying efforts and everything, which is obviously real and, and huge. But, but you, do you think we sometimes overestimate it? And forget the human element, forget the tribalism, forget all of those kind of things that you just mentioned. Because I think our instinct on this podcast and in our community is just to assume that these are shills for fossil fuel companies. And, you know, there's they're doing the fossil fuel companies bidding and that's the end of it. But are we actually missing something there by kind of reaching for that each time? That's a very insightful question. Um, I think we are. The, the fossil fuel industry got the ball rolling. So, you know, the, the documentary, the book Merchants of Doubt, explains in great detail who did it, who they hired, what they said, how they sowed doubt. So it's like they sowed the field, so to speak. But now the weeds are growing all by themselves. That ball is rolling down the hill faster and faster. And it's getting a few little pushes from the fossil fuel industry still. Many of them are still involved. Some of them are not anymore, but some of them still are. But it's taken on a life of its own because... Our society is becoming increasingly fractured and divided and tribalized. And part of that is our access to customized media and the algorithms that YouTube and Facebook use to put things in front of us. It's been shown, for example, by one of my colleagues here at my university, Ashley Landrum, that YouTube is primarily responsible for the rise of the flat earth movement. If it wasn't for YouTube's algorithms, it would just be a dude in his mother's basement. And yeah. Instead, you've got NBA basketball players questioning things that the Greeks knew thousands of years ago, which is ridiculous. So, so we have this tribalized society now where people have articles of faith to belong to their social group. And sadly, one of those articles of faith now for many people is, thou shalt not agree that climate change is real. And it's part of a toxic stew. It isn't a standalone issue. I have been conducting a long-running experiment on social media for over a decade now, where I get attacked every day. Um, yesterday was a bad day. I think I had to block a couple of hundred people. Usually it's just a few. Oh um, yes. And when I block people, I go to their profile to see who they are before I block them, because I'm curious, why did they just wake up and decide to call me a whore? Like, <laughs> what? They kick the cat and then they go online and call her a whore. Like, what does that have to do with each other? And in every instance, when you look at their feed these days, it's all about vaccine denial, COVID denial, uh, mask denial. It's all about, in the UK, it's all about Brexit. In Canada, it's all about how they hate the prime minister um, and they support the truckers convoy that is completely messing up the lives of everybody who lives in Ottawa right now. Um, if they live in the US, they definitely believe that Trump won the election. If they live in Australia, they love the prime minister and coal and you will pry that coal from their dead and dying hands. So it's part of this toxic identity stew and it's taken on a complete life of its own to where it frankly is a belief system rather than just what science says. 
Can we ask you a question that was posed to us by one of our Patreon supporters, Katie Crooks on Patreon? Um, Katie says, firstly, she's very kind. She says, hi, guys. Thank you so much for having such a stellar guest. That's you. Stella. She says she's very excited. And she says, what does Catherine think Jesus would say to Christians that are antagonistic towards the climate movement? Um, I love that question. Yeah. Yeah. So the reason we're asking you that, of course, is because you, as well as being uh, extremely knowledgeable on climate science per se, you also are a Christian and proud of it. And uh, that's very much part of your identity and what you talk about. So, yeah, what would Jesus do about James Inhofe, for example, who (laughs) is a Christian who's antagonistic towards the climate movement? Well, a number of years ago, there was a campaign called What Would Jesus Drive? Amazing. But I don't think that that's what what he'd be talking about. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says to his disciples that you, in other words, people who follow him, will be recognized by your love for others. And today, when we look at how climate change is affecting, as I said before, the poorest and most vulnerable people, whether they live in an urban neighborhood in London, whether they live in a rural area in Texas, or whether they live in sub-Saharan Africa, where they don't have access to basic sanitation or electricity, wherever we look around this world, the poorest, most marginalized people are being affected the most by climate change. And that is not fair. And so I think of climate action as, as what is it other than an opportunity to love? To love each other, to love our sisters and our brothers, every other human that shares this planet with us, to love the incredible um, nature that we live in, all of the plants and animals that depend on the same air and water and land that we do. Failure to act is a failure to love. And so if I think Jesus spoke to us today in person, I think he would say love. And he wouldn't, because there's there's the other argument that says that uh, all of this oil, all of this gas, all of this coal was Mm -hmm. made by God for us to have and to use. And if he didn't want us to be using it, then uh, he wouldn't have put it there, would he? Presumably, you do not agree with this position. You could say the same thing about drugs. We figured out how to make drugs, so shouldn't we just be using them? (laughs) I mean, there's quite a few logical flaws in that argument. But um, I would disarm that argument with actually one of my global weirding episodes. I actually made a whole global weirding episode on this. And it says something very controversial. I'm grateful for the benefits that fossil fuels have brought us. Emphasis on the have, past tense. If you think of what our lives were like 300 years ago, and especially as a woman, if I think about what my life would be like 300 years ago, I'm very sure I would have died at an early age. And if I hadn't died at an early age, I would have died giving birth. I know that for sure. (laughs) I would not have had the opportunity to be educated. My life would be an endless drudgery of chores. My life quality would be immeasurably poorer if I even had one without the industrial revolution that was powered by fossil fuels. And so before the industrial revolution, the average lifespan of a person in the UK, which at that time, you know, was one of the most developed countries in the world, was 40 years. I don't mind admitting I'm over that. <laughs> so chances are I wouldn't so be here. No, no shame in that. No shame in <laughs> yeah. that. But, but now it's it's over 80 years. And so when we look back at what fossil fuels have brought us, the uh, medical advances, the technological advances, the ability to have leisure, to be educated, to read, to travel, I am truly grateful for the benefits they brought us. But you know what? Over 70% of our carbon was emitted in my lifetime. In my lifetime. Mm. And so it's like we, fossil fuels got us to where we needed to be. But if we had taken the oil crisis seriously in the 70s, if we had 
initiated the transition to clean energy then, we would be in a radically different place than we are today. The biggest part of the problem, the bulk of that problem has occurred during most of our lifetimes. And that is why we have a problem today. And that is why we have to accelerate that transition as quickly as possible. Because today, thanks to our excess consumption of fossil fuels, the costs of using those fossil fuels massively outweigh the benefits. Now, what are we going to do? We could run away. No, they just find us again. They always do. All right. right. I was watching your TED talk um, from a couple of years ago now. I think it's 2018 or something. And I know like stuff changes quickly and not least pandemic and everything. But but in that, you sort of made the point that what's happening in India in particular is really instructive with the fact that actually industrialization might not any longer have to include fossil fuels. Like, do Do you still think that? Is that still what's in your view, likely to happen in developing countries now? Um, that depends on the choices that we make. And we we have to make choices to move in that direction because otherwise we'll fall back on the default, which is the way we've always done it. So I was encouraged by the fact that the last two years during the COVID pandemic, over 90% of new energy installed around the world was clean energy. I mean, that is just an amazing statistic. Many of the low-income countries that lack consistent access to electricity across the country, they don't have vast resources of fossil fuels. And so there are countries, and China was doing this, but as part of COP26, they said they would stop. They were actually going to lower-income countries and building coal-fired power plants so they could sell them their coal. And yes, those countries need electricity, but it's a form of colonialization, making people dependent on something that you can supply to them. Mm. And yes, you're giving them electricity, but 9 million people already lose their lives prematurely every year, not just one or two years of a pandemic, but every year from air pollution, from burning fossil fuels. That is a very steep price to be paying for our electricity. And while there's no magic switch we can flip to turn it all off today, and while there's still many low-income countries who have to rely on fossil fuels at this point because they don't have the infrastructure, the technology to create and maintain clean sources of energy, we must transition ourselves and work with those countries to help them transition for the good of all of us and for our health today as well as for the climate tomorrow. Hi, I'm Arabella and you're listening to Sustainable. I thought love was only true in fairy tales. So I, I want to go back and talk a bit about the whole sort of trust and groups and stuff like that because I think it is a fairly safe bet that most people that listen to Sustainable are liberal, greeny sorts like us. Um, never done a day's work in their life. Yeah. Uh, nice soft hands <laughs> sort of thing. Old's definitely got soft hands. Well, I did it. music at uni, so I, I'm like, I'm the worst of the worst, you know. Contradiction in terms of that is, yes, you did. Um, and <laughs> what I'm wondering is, when, uh, when are liberal, greeny sorts the problem, do you think? Mm. By which I mean the stuff we say and the people we say it to? Well, I think we have a few problems, and I'm going to start with one that might surprise you, but then I also want to address the one you're thinking of, because I agree that's a problem too. So often people say to me when they you know, watch my TED Talk, which is called The Most Important Thing You Can Do is Talk About Climate Change, or when they read my book, Saving Us, which is all about the power of having those conversations where we advocate for change at every level, they say, I live in a bubble. So what's the point of talking about it if we all feel the same way? 
And to that, I would say, you may, first of all, you may think everybody feels the same way, but how do you know if you're not talking about it? And second of all, sure, you might all be worried. So I live in the United States where 70% of people are worried about climate change. In Canada and the UK, it's over 75%. When you look at mothers and mums, it's 83%, young people, 86%. So actually, the majority of us are already worried about climate change. But in the United States, and I'm sorry I don't have the statistic for the UK, but I don't think it's that different, only 8% of people are activated. 8%. So we could be as worried as we like, but if we're not activated, if we're not doing anything about it, it makes no difference. We might as well say it isn't real for all the difference it makes. What's the purpose of having these conversations? The biggest purpose, in my opinion, is not to argue with Uncle Joe and convince them that it's real. The biggest purpose of this conversation is to activate the three quarters of the people who are already worried, but they don't know what to do. They feel hopeless or helpless. And so I think one of the biggest mistakes that we make is first of all, that we focus our conversation on, and there's three things I think we focus our conversation on, or we don't focus at all on our conversation on because we don't have it, that is a mistake. And number one is focusing only on people who don't agree with the science. You know. It isn't that they really don't agree with the science. It's the same physics that explains how stoves heat food. And there's not a lot of stove deniers out there. I've never run into a <laughs> single one. So don't focus on convincing people the facts. Focus on the fact that people aren't activated. Okay, so then people say, all right, if they're not activated, it's because they don't get it. it they don't understand how bad it is. So I'm going to load up with all of the scary facts about polar bears and Antarctic ice sheets uh-huh. and deoxygenization numbers, of the ocean. Numbers. They need more numbers. That's what <laughs> yes. they need. Graphs. Did you, uh, Here, look, I've got a fistful of graphs. Look at yes. these. <laughs> yes. And I'm going to hit them with it and that's going to activate them. Well, here's the thing. If we are already worried and we get even more worried, but we don't know what to do, our instinctive reaction as humans is to freeze. We are paralyzed. So it makes us even more paralyzed when we load up with more fear-based facts, but we don't know what to do. Because again, why is there such a gap between you know three quarters being worried and 8% being activated? We don't know what to do. Don't panic, don't panic. Right. Don't, don't panic, you're all right. <laughs> so that's the second thing we do wrong is, is the fear-based messaging. What's the third one? The guilting and the judging, the pointing uh, the finger. We love that. We're, oh, I think yes. We we're pretty good at humans. that. We're pretty good <laughs> pretty at that. Good. Yes. Pretty good at that, yeah. <laughs> I've discovered over the years that guilting and shaming all into doing things does not work. If anything, it has a <laughs> counterproductive effect. Shocking. Often, yeah, yeah. I still do it, obviously, because it's fun. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. And why do we do <laughs> but it? I, like, I know I should do the thing that you're guilting me and shaming me into doing, but... It annoys me that you're guilting me and shaming me. So for that reason alone, I don't do it. Well, it annoys me that you're not doing it. (laughs) So you're going to get more guilt. Precisely. I'm totally with you. I'm completely 100% with you. And what what gets you even more is we know the person doing it to us is doing it to make themselves feel better, to make themselves feel superior. Right. It's a zero sum game. Which they never admit. They never admit. That is what's going on. I'm happy to admit that. <laughs> all right. I don't, I don't need to guilt you to feel superior to you all. <laughs> Good. Right. Well, moving on. Do you, do you need a minute? I think we do. Yeah, this is, all, this is you know, this is said with feeling, Dave. It's fine. Um, it's fine. As you were. Yes. So, no, uh, carry on, please. Yes. Yeah. So, so that is, I see that all the time. In fact, um, in my book, I tell a story about how I was at a meeting with uh, various 
people from Christian organizations trying to figure out how they could reach people in the faith community, Catholic, Protestant, or Orthodox, whatever. And after we went around in circles for a little while, one man finally had enough and he pounded the table and he said, all you have to do is tell people it's a sin. Tell them when they turn their car on, it's a sin. And so my immediate reaction was just like yours. I thought, okay, I live in a place with no public transportation. I tried biking, but then I got almost run over several times by big SUV driving, you know, huge beverage slurping people who were on their cell phones and didn't bother to look to see if there was a biker beside them. And so you're saying that when I take my child to the doctor, it's a sin. When I go to work, it's a sin. When I go to church, it's a sin. I wanted to go out to the parking lot, and this was actually in Texas, so I'm sure I probably could have done this, and find the biggest Hummer I could and just drive in circles around him, leaning out the window, waving, saying, sitting, I'm sitting. <laughs> that's what I wanted to do. And so if I'm a climate scientist and that's what I want to do, imagine how anybody else feels. So just the other day on Twitter, I noticed because as people's fear is rising, which it is, there are way more people panicked today than there were even a year right. ago about climate change. As people's fear is rising, they are responding by guilting other people to make themselves feel temporarily better, like you eat a sugary snack to give you a temporary sugary high, and then it leaves you lower than before, so you have to do it again. So on Twitter, I set a timer for three hours, and I said, I'm going to count how many times I personally am guilted and shamed on Twitter. Not because of anything that I was saying there, but just people just randomly attacking me. And I counted 12 times in three hours. Wow. And, and that, so this is this just, is, you know, mm -hmm. not just anyone they're guilting and shaming on the climate. This is someone who's doing more than I would say 99.9% .9 of the population, right? That's Somebody who has dedicated their life to this. Yes. Right. And so I went on an absolute tear with my threads, I often do threads on Twitter, saying, look, do you think this makes a difference? No, it makes no difference. It just makes me want to do the opposite, like you said. And so how do you think other people feel when you judge what they eat or what they drive or how they travel? People are just trying to survive this pandemic. They're just trying to stay sane. They're just trying to put food on the table. And along come you with your judgy attitude of should you be doing this or eating that or going there? I said, you know, some amount of guilt and shame is appropriate for the large corporations who made very conscious decisions to mislead people. Absolutely. Guilt and shame there. But the average person who is just trying to survive, cut them a break. They're probably worried about climate change. They probably don't know what to do. Come alongside them and offer them some encouragement of what other people are doing, of what you're doing that you love, of how they might be able to do something. Like I helped to co-found an organization called Science Mums that's all about how mums can use their voice because mums have great voices. And just give them a little hope and encouragement instead of guilting them because the last thing we need is more of that today. And how, how easy is that? Or, or rather, I suppose, how do you force yourself to do that? Because as you said, like, it's getting scarier by the day and the reaction, therefore, or the temptation to react to that scariness and that increasing scariness with shame and with guilt is, I think, getting stronger every day because the, the gap between how bad things are getting and the scale of action required is getting bigger. And so you want everyone to be doing more and you see that they're not and you feel worse about it. So how, for people listening, for us, how do you kind of reach out with the empathy, which I think is what you were describing, mm -hmm. there, you know, that actually think about what 
people are going through what their priorities are and how they might feel how how do we all do how, that how do you not be a knob <laughs> how do you it's exactly asking. thank you dave that how, is the question you, yes <laughs> um you know right now in the uk like we are on the precipice of uh, an historic genuinely historic kind of squeeze on uh on living standards because gas prices are going through the roof inflation's going up uh, wages not doing anything like it. We are going to be entering a period where people's priorities, if they ever were kind of looking towards climatey stuff, are going to be looking increasingly away from climatey stuff as they make choices about whether to have the central heating on or whether to get some food for their kids. Like it's so, how do we, what do we do? What do we do in that? Well, you're totally right. And I would say, first of all, if we don't feel like we can have a conversation with that empathy, then we shouldn't be having the conversation. We could have a conversation with somebody else and leave that conversation for a different person. Because if we cannot bring respect and empathy to the table, we could make it worse, not better. And that's a fact. I'm not talking about political arguments. I'm just talking about interpersonal relationships with our family, our colleagues, our friends, our neighbors, people we work with, people we go to school with, people we play ultimate frisbee with, people we go fishing with. If we can't suspend our judgment and guilt, then just, you know, you can, you can fully verbalize it internally. But just make sure it's an internal monologue and it does not come out because that's just going to make things worse. And we don't need to make anything worse right now. We need to make it better. So how do you make it better? Um, I practice active hope where I go out and I look for sources of hope. Because if I wait for your hope to arrive on my door, it's not going to because the media doesn't sell stories based on hope. People click on doom, despair, anxiety, frustration, anger. That's what makes people click. But if you go out and you look at who's doing things, what's doing things, what big businesses are doing or organizations or nonprofits or, you know, if you go out and you look for what's happening, there are a million points of hope. And that's a great place to start a conversation with somebody else. Like I just read or I just heard or did you know or I tried this myself or I heard about a, a, a university that did this or did you know that um, big mm. company X is doing that? Those are really good stories we can start conversations with. And it makes us feel that it might be possible to do something. And that's the biggest barrier we have. The biggest barrier is not lack of understanding of the science. The biggest barrier is not lack of fear. We've got lots of that. The biggest barrier is lack of efficacy. Efficacy mm. in the sense that I don't think that I can make a difference. I don't think we can make a difference. I don't think there's anything we can do. What's the first step to giving people efficacy is actually witnessing it, seeing what other people have done and saying, wow, they did that. Well, if they did that, then maybe I could do something too. Or if um, a church did that, well, maybe our church could do that too. Or if a school did that, maybe we could try that too. And then you use your voice to say, hey, maybe we could do this together. And that knocks over the first chain. And I know I'm quoting George Marshall a little bit here too, because he says, how does social change happen? The first step is when people have conversations. So I follow George, who of course founded Climate Outreach. I follow him on Instagram. We've known each other for a long time because he interviewed me for the book that he wrote, Don't Even Think About It, How Our Brains Are Wired to Ignore Climate Change. And he, you know, he likes to cycle around the countryside on the weekends and take pictures of churches and architectural curiosities he sees. So he posted a photo on Instagram some time ago that made a huge light bulb go off for me. And he didn't mean it this way, but this is the way I took it. He posted a photograph of a memorial plaque in the wall of a church of a member of parliament whose name was not familiar to me and would probably not be familiar to anyone other than a historian of 18th century politics in England. 
And on that MP's memorial plaque, it said he voted for the first anti-slavery bill. And I thought to myself, how many people whose names we don't know, Mm. how many people um, inspired William Wilberforce? Mm. How many people worked alongside him? How many members of parliament were inspired by people in their lives? How many members of parliament then voted for anti-slavery? How long did it take to get that bill passed? We don't know who those people were, but they existed and they changed the world. And the way they changed the world was by using their voices to advocate for change. Does that not just give you chills down your back? <laughs> it's beautiful. It's a bit like the, uh, I don't have it to hand, but the very end of Middlemarch. I don't want to come over all English literature. Ooh, look at this. you. I know. Crikey. Yeah, I know. Pulled the very that one end, out of the, the hat, didn't actually, you? Well, as you were saying that, I thought, did I even read this when I was reading about Catherine the other day? But the very end of Middlemarch says some, something like, you know, her life was didn't amount to much apart from the fact that she did loads of stuff which rippled through the whole rest of human history or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's like that, right? And that's Rebecca Solnit's thing, isn't it? The hope in the dark idea mm. that you, everything you are doing is going to have an impact on someone somewhere and somebody will see your little flame in the dark. And as far as you know, that's the person that goes on to draw hope and do something amazing in the future, right? I love that. <laughs> Get a haircut, hippie. <laughs> So those of us who spend far too much time uh, waiting for sciencey publications about how bad everything is, um, I think we've got some treats in store this year, haven't we? <laughs> <Bump a> year <laughs> ahead. Uh, we'll be good boys and girls. Tell, what, what have we got coming? What's in the post in terms of um, like the UN's body, the IPCC? Uh, are they going to be telling us anything Um very, very bad about how things are very, very bad. Um, and how should we be dealing with that if they are? Yes, we have another doom-filled doorstop coming out soon. <laughs> and that would be Working Group 2 report of the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. Oh, hang on. I just need to play the sexy uh, Working Group 2 report of the International Government on panel on whatever you said, music. <laughs> All right. Very good. Yeah. <laughs> Let me know what that is so I can add it to my soundtrack. Um, so working group one focuses on the science, why climate is changing, what impacts we see today, and the modeling of what we expect in the future in terms of temperature, precipitation, sea ice, so on and so forth. Working group two talks about the impacts. How are these changes and how will these changes affect every region of the world and every sector? of the economy, so our food and our water. Uh, Then working group three report, that's the one that you might get a bit of a glimpse of hope in because that's the one that talks about our response. So how are we going to cut our emissions? What technologies are gonna take us there? What do those pathways look like? What's needed to make those pathways happen? It's like Return of the Jedi. Yeah, it actually is. Yeah, the third one is where you get the, you know, that's where you defeat the emperor. Yes. Right? Spoiler, sorry. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. <laughs> but but despite the fact that, again, I call these doom-filled doorstops, the science itself does show hope. Because you know what the main conclusion, the headline conclusion of the 1.5 degree report that came out a couple of years ago was? It was this. Every action matters. Every choice matters. Every year matters. Every bit of warming matters. That is an incredibly 
empowering message as well as a warning message, because what it basically says is everything we do matters because if we make the wrong choices, there are very negative consequences and we're facing some of those already today. But the empowering part of it is that we can still make a difference. And this is what I do. I study as a scientist the difference that our choices today will make on our future in terms of the availability of water supply for the state of California, or whether farmers in Iowa are able to grow corn or not, or farmers in Uzbekistan for that matter. I've done those both. Whether cities will experience multiple deadly heat waves every single year, or they'll just get one every few years that they could prepare for and build resilience to. I study the difference between the futures where we do nothing and the futures where we do as much as we can. And I can tell you the difference between those two futures, and I'm not quoting the IPCC here, I'm quoting my own research. The difference is night and day, heaven and hell, the survival of human civilization as we know it. That's the difference that is still in our hands today. And so that's why it's so important to communicate the two sides of the coin, the risks that we face in a way that is here and now and relevant to us, not the polar bears and the ice sheets, but Mm. our health, our homes, our jobs, our economy, our family. And then on the other side of the coin, at the same time, in the same breath, and unfortunately with the IPCC, this won't be done because there's too many months in between the different reports. But when we talk to people in the same breath, what is being done and what can be done. And concrete examples of, I live in the United States where many low-income neighborhoods were historically redlined, which were racist lending practices of mortgages and insurance that left a lot of low-income neighborhoods just covered in concrete, no green spaces, up to, you know, over 10 degrees Celsius hotter during a heat wave than wealthier neighborhoods that have the trees and the parks and the green space. And in those poorer neighborhoods, they can't afford to pay the air conditioning bills. They can't open their window at night because it's unsafe. They don't have access to good health care. And so the health impacts of those heat waves are magnified by orders of magnitude compared to the richer neighborhoods, exacerbated by air pollution. So what does the solution look like? A solution of greening low-income neighborhoods would, first of all, reduce their vulnerability to heat waves. It would help purify the air because that's a big part of cleaning up our air, which would improve physical health. It improves our mental health when we're surrounded by greenery as opposed to just straight lines on concrete. It provides flood control because there's pervious uh, surfaces for that water to sink into. And often lower income neighborhoods are typically in flood zones because it's cheaper to build there and other people don't want to live there. So you've got these solutions that address issues of racial justice, socioeconomic justice, um, extreme heat vulnerability, long-term health outcomes. Oh, and when you plant all those trees, they take up carbon too. So those types of concrete examples of this has happened in Louisville, Kentucky, or this is happening, Mm. you know, urban gardens in low-income neighborhoods in London that provide food for people who need it and reduce the urban heat island effect and engage kids in profitable work. These types of concrete stories are so powerful to make us realize, you know what? It doesn't take a prime minister to change the world. Individual, ordinary people can change the world. And in fact, you know, when we look back in history at how women got the vote, how slavery ended, how um, apartheid ended in South Africa, it didn't happen when big, important, influential people woke up one morning and decided it had to happen. It happened when very ordinary people who... Um, even the names we know today, at that time, they were not famous, they were not influential, they were not wealthy. They were people who had the courage of their convictions and they acted and used their voice to bring others along with them and that's how the world changed. 
We often have people coming on this here podcast saying things that are not as eloquently, but things that are sort of like what you said, right? Which is essentially a narrative which goes, we're all kind of screwed, but we're not screwed because if we do stuff, we won't be screwed. And I have hope that we are not screwed. And if we do stuff, etc. And I want to know how much of you... I know oh, you told me off for saying that. I know I've got your sceptical face on, but I do think there is an element of... <laughs> I, think, I, think most, I think most people come here and... and, and, and Add a little bit more nuance to that and be like, obviously, there are degrees of, of screwedness. And, yes, okay, you know, yes, everything yes, we do yes, determines yes, okay. how screwed. Yes, and obviously, right. we yes. as a crude yes. way of characterizing. Yes, blah, blah, blah. Yes. So just, yes. Because we'll get letters, Dave, if that's how you characterize it. Well, we well, don't I can, care I can what answer. letters we get. I haven't even <laughs> asked it yet. <laughs> Sorry. I know what you're so, asking. I can answer that question. I want to know how much of uh, what, how much of it is you talking yourself into thinking we're not screwed and how much you actually believe in your heart of hearts, that there is hope and we will be all right. Because I often get the feeling that people are saying, but it's all right if we act, it'll be fine, but they don't believe it in their guts. And I want to know what whether you have moments of not believing it's all going to be fine in your guts. Who doesn't have moments? Um, show me that person and I would love to know what they're on. <laughs> because how can you not have moments of despair when you look at politicians mired in inaction or you look at gas prices soaring and ExxonMobil's revenues going through the ceiling? Um, how can you not have those moments of despair? Show me a human who's aware of the problem fully who does not have those moments and I will be absolutely surprised. You will have found the superhuman if you do. Kylie. Ah, okay, there we go. <laughs> yep. But the, the way I think about it is this. It's as if um, we've been smoking for years and even decades, and we've been smoking more and more, one or two cigarettes a day, five or ten cigarettes a day, a pack of cigarettes a day. And we've gotten to the point where we have impaired lung capacity. We are not going to make it to the Olympics, that dream is over. We have permanent lung damage. We have some spots in our lungs and serious action is needed in order to prevent emphysema, lung cancer, and death. Is it possible if we continue on our current pathway and we can't wean ourselves off our addiction that those things are in our future? Yes, it's very possible. And if we don't wean ourselves off our addiction, it's even probable that that is our end. But we know that if we do take serious steps today, that we can still live a long life. It will not be the same life we had before. It will be, you know, to continue the example, impaired lung capacity and checks to the doctor. But even though we live on a warmer world, even though our sea levels are rising and will continue to do so, even though our plants and animals and crops are shifting poleward and invasive species are moving in and heat waves are more frequent and Climate change is loading our weather dice against us, making hurricanes and cyclones and typhoons stronger and dumping more extreme rain on us and supersizing our droughts. That has already happened. It is already here. But we know that we are still able to preserve civilization as we know it. Agricultural systems, economic systems, geopolitical systems, our infrastructure. It is possible to preserve that if we act now. And that's why, again, I practice hope. 
Hope is not something that just sort of lands, you know, by chance. Hope is a discipline that you go out and you look for reasons to hope. And so I talk to people in energy. I serve on boards where uh, big companies are making big decisions to try to change the world, even if it affects their bottom line. And I look for news stories and I share them about the hope that's happening because here's the thing. It's a self-reinforcing cycle. As Christiana Figueres says in her book that she wrote with Tom Karnak called The Future We Choose, which after she enact, you know, she finally brought that herd of quarreling and spitting cats together and got the whole world to sign the Paris Agreement, anybody else would have gone off to a hammock and a mojito in, in Costa Rica for the rest of their life. But she did not do that. She went and she wrote the most hopeful book I have ever read called The Future We Choose. And in it, she, she paints a vivid picture of what that world would look like in terms of blue sky and clean water and livable cities and healthy food systems and integrated, you know, communities where people know their neighbor and walk their kids to school safely and people live in harmony with each other and with the natural environment. And she said this, she said, the greatest lesson we learned, if we take those steps looking back, was that we were only ever as doomed as we believed ourselves to be. So hope is something that we must practice. We must teach others to practice it too, because without it, we are doomed. The foremost cartographers of the land have prepared this for you. It's a map of the area that you'll be traversing. <laughs> they'd be very grateful if you could just fill it in as you go along. Catherine, thank you so much. Um, I, for ages, I've said that uh, when we had Naomi Oreskes on, that that was my favourite interview, and I think... It's now my joint favourite interview. I enjoyed that so much. Thank you. Um, and I know everyone listening will have done as well. Uh, tell us more about your book. Um, where do you want people to buy it and in what quantity? Well, that's a, first of all, that's a tremendous honour. Naomi Oreskes is, of course, the co-author of Merchants of Doubt that I alluded to earlier. And she has done a spectacular job of revealing the techniques that the fossil fuel industry used to muddy the waters on the science and pulling back the curtain, so to speak, on The Wizard of Oz. Um, I, my book is very different. It is called Saving Us, A Climate Scientist's Case for Hope and Healing in a Divided World. And the reason I wrote my book is because for the last three or four years, no matter where I've been, no matter who I'm speaking to, whether it's in the UK or Canada or the US or beyond, whether I'm speaking to children or senior citizens or rotary clubs or agricultural groups or churches or universities, I have gotten the same two questions again and again to the point where I was getting them almost every day. And those questions were this, what gives you hope? Or the flip side is, are we screwed? <laughs> and how do I have a conversation about this with my friends or my family or my elected officials or the people who run my company or organization? How do I talk about it? Because we don't talk about it. We self-silence. We're really worried and we don't talk about it, which makes us even more worried. So that's why I wrote the book to say, what gives me hope? And the answer is action. Action is what gives us hope. Realizing what other people are doing and taking action ourselves. And actually Greta Thunberg says this very well. She says, the one thing we need more than hope is action because when we act, hope is all around us. And the first most effective step that every single one of us can take has nothing to do with light bulbs, recycling, or diet. It is using our voice to advocate for change because by using our voice, we engage not our carbon footprint, but our climate shadow. 
And our climate shadow, the way we interact with people, where we live, where we work, you know, everywhere we go, is orders of magnitude bigger than our footprint. So imagine if that first Amazon employee had said, well, I'm just going to reduce my carbon footprint as much as I can, and that's all I'm going to do. But instead, they said, I work for Amazon, one of the biggest corporations in the world. I'm going to use my voice to say, why is Amazon not addressing the climate crisis? Look at the magnitude. It snowballed. It reached Jeff Bezos. And <laughs> now Amazon is well on its way to doing a lot. Of course, everybody can always do more. But they are one of the companies who showed up to COP26 with eagerness, with plans, with conversations, with looking for allies to move the ball on climate change. And it's not because... Again, it happened at the top. It happened because people who work within that organization or others use their voice to advocate for change. So a couple months ago, I got a message and they said, Catherine, the Presbyterian Church of Ireland just voted to divest from fossil fuels. I said, well, that's wonderful. That's a point of hope that I can share with people. And they said, well, that's not all. In the speech calling for people to do that, they read from your book, which had encouraged them to have the conversations they needed before calling for the vote so that people would be on board with getting the whole denomination from divesting. And just think of the power that we can activate when we do that. And so that's why I wrote my book, because more, more than facts, more than fear, more than guilt, we need hope. And where do we find hope? It's in action. And how do we act? By engaging our climate shadows. So I am so excited to say, and this is brand new news, that Ooh, I was one- an exclusive. Yeah, it is. It is. I was one of the experts that Netflix brought in to help develop an action platform to go with the movie Don't Look Up. Oh, ah. right. We didn't even ask you about that. Yes. <laughs> yes. And so it is a fantastic, and, and, and I am biased, but I think it's one of the best act, personal action platforms there is out there, where people go there and they say, what can I do to prevent the comet from destroying Earth? And the number one answer is talk about it. And the Yay. number two answer Ooh. is join an organization that shares your values and advocates for change. And then it talks about where we invest our money, how we can engage in our workplace. And yes, of course, how we can take personal actions with our personal carbon footprint. But when we do so, talk about them too and use those as a way to change others around us. So that's a great resource for people. If they want to know more, there's lots of links to everything from my TED Talk to climate outreach materials on explaining the power of engaging with others and engaging that, that climate shadow we have and lots of other great information just on, you know, where do we bank or um, how do we get people going at work? But I love the fact that they just didn't end the story with, oh, hey, I'll make a note that I must, we must start this episode with a spoiler alert for the end of Don't Look Up. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, oh. <laughs> well, that's all right. We've done a whole episode about Don't Look Up, so I think, you know. Yeah, yeah, which we said, spoilers. Yeah. Right, that is just about it for another episode of The Babble. Thank you so, so, so much to Catherine Hayhoe for being superb. And what a communicator, what a storyteller, what a inspiration. Uh, yes, I meant it when I said that is very much up there. I think joint favourite interview, possibly even number one spot. So thank you, Catherine. Uh, go and buy her book and follow her on Twitter. Extremely active on Twitter and a source of great bounce as well as great insight. 
I've been really thinking, oh, I just wanted to, you know, no time, we're out and all that sort of stuff. But I was just thinking about the practicing hope thing mm. and how important that is. It's true, right? It's a thing that you have to work at. And it made me think of Tchaikovsky. Goodness me, you are getting yes. more erudite. Yes. Well, at least well, you're, you're, you're admitting to your erudity, if that's the word. Er- erudition. Erudition. Actually. There um, we go. Yes. There we go. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he said, uh, he, he, wrote, he wrote a letter, he wrote it to someone, and someone had said to him something like, oh, how do you always churn out all these songs on that? And he said, um, he said, but every But you've morning, got a copy of the letter in front of you there, do you? Yes, every morning, he says, I, I have to master my disinclination. So what he meant by that, so every morning he wakes up and he is disinclined to write any more music. He's disinclined now to look, work. I'm not putting myself and... on a par with Tchaikovsky, but I do recognise that feeling. <laughs> and the phrase you have to master your disinclination makes me think a lot about practical hope. You have to master the fact that you don't you might not feel hopeful. You can master that. You can work at it. And every morning you might have to go. Let's give it a bit of hope, right? But what Tchaikovsky said is every morning it gets a bit easier. So there we are. Tchaikovsky, George Eliot, whatever else I said, Kylie Minogue um, and Catherine Hayo. Oh. I just wanted to say also episode 149 is when we talked to that Naomi Oreskes. So okay. go back and listen to that. Also, very much the same vein. If you enjoyed this, you will enjoy that. Very good. Okay, uh, thanks as ever to Dickie Moore for the music that begins, ends and twinkles this podcast. Thank you to Arthur Stover, What Does the Logo, uh, that you can find on, among other things, T-shirts that are available from our website for just a few of your pennies. Uh, and that website is www.sustainababble.fish. Uh, if you want to get in touch with us, uh, you can do so by emailing hello at sustainababble.fish. You can tweet us at the Babble Wagon, or you can just search Facebook for Sustainable beautifully done all and please remember that we are a listener funded podcast so you can go to wobbly 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 dot patreon dot com slash sustainable and chuck in the price of a pint to help your babble do fun things and save world yes yes and 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 oh a massive thank you to babble listener tom jennings uh who suggested Catherine to come on and made it happen thank you so much tom you are our hero and we appreciate it yes Good. Should we get on with it? I mean, off no. with it. <laughs> no. Let's get off with it. Let's off get with off with it. it. <laughs> off with it. Bye. Bye. Bye.